welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm filling in for our pastor, Dave Robson, who's out of country, and uh, in studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Dave is across the pond, he is. as they say, <laughs> in merry old England, uh, maybe even watching the program. He you might never be. know, <clears throat> he but might it's, be. it's on really late there. It's it midnight, is, uh, yeah. Or, or early or something. Right, yeah, I think yeah. it's about a, an like, eight-hour like, time change. Like two in the morning or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> that's yeah. where he is. Yeah, he's heading back home, I think, this weekend or sometime. Sometime. Soon. Yeah. Uh, but also in studio with us is uh, Pastor Sean Richards. Hello, sir. Hello. We have a couple of questions already from our email that we'll get to off the start. But if you're new here... This is called A Reason for Hope. We are a weekday Bible answer program. We uh, live stream every uh, day, Monday through Friday, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We are here, we are here in Southern Arizona. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is the place where we are in here now. This is our home church, and we live stream all our services as well as this program every day. So if you uh, have a question about the Bible, about the historicity of the New Testament, is Jesus really who he claimed to be? Is he really who Christians claim for him to be? Uh, does God exist? Is there a specific passage of scripture that might apply to, to a specific situation in my life? All kinds of questions that people have about their faith or the faith of others. And we would encourage you to join us and ask your questions. If you have a question about the Bible, and how to apply it to your life, please join us. You can do so by joining us uh, live on Facebook. If you go to facebook.com and uh, forward slash at CCF Tucson, that's our page name. You can join us that way and you can simply, when the live stream starts, you join and you can use the comments section to ask your questions. We monitor it during the program and so we'd be happy to engage with you that way. You can also watch the live stream on YouTube. And if you happen to catch us on these social media platforms, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit that notification bell so you can keep track of our next live stream, as well as help grow us, uh, help us grow our audience. Our goal here is to really give reasons for hope to as many people as possible. We believe that Christianity is true, and that's why we believe it. Um, <clears throat> and so we want to encourage others to look at the evidence and to make a reasonable and informed step of faith. Our handle on YouTube is at a reason for hope 546. We also archive this program on Rumble. We're not live streaming there just yet, but if you uh, would like to catch us there and don't really prefer to go to YouTube or Facebook or don't have a Facebook account, uh, feel free to go and watch the program after the fact on Rumble and you can email us a question. If you do so, follow us on Rumble. We'd like to grow our audience there so that when we do start live streaming, we'll have some folks who can engage with us there. If you want to avoid social media altogether, just go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. Hit the Watch Live tab. Not only can you watch this program and all of our services live, but you can chat and ask your questions in the little chat box that you'll see there when you join the live stream, as well as make prayer requests. So we'd encourage you to do that <clears throat> if you prefer to avoid uh, you know, being on a social media platform and engaging with others. Most of our audiences are uh, people who watch us are, are nice, and so I don't think you have to worry about uh, any negative feedback to your question. There's no, there's no wrong question ever. It's really a matter of how sincere you are and if you're genuinely seeking truth. And that's our goal here. Right. <clears throat> also, we have an app. You can go to the iTunes or the Apple or Google Play Store, I mean, and you can download our app. You just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, 
You can download this app and with it you can uh, keep track of our current events. You can engage with chat groups. You can uh, have a nice little digital Bible and follow along on messages. You can make notes, highlights, uh, and so much more. So we encourage you to download that. You can watch all our live streams as well as our archived messages. We teach the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse. So let's say you wanted to go through the book of First John, verse by verse from beginning to end. Go to our archives and you can do just that, verse by verse, and go through an entire study as our pastor has taught it. So we encourage you to take advantage of that by downloading the app. And it's back to questions. If you want to ask a question in a more discreet manner, you may do so by simply emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. And lastly, we'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor on Twitter. Just go to twitter.com forward slash at Scott R4H. It's an entertaining and informative Twitter feed, so I'd encourage you to follow him there, as well as you can leave questions there. So if you have a question that you want to be have addressed on the program, simply tweet the question out, and we will handle it on the program. Without all said, we're eager to get to your questions. Um, before we do that, we always take a moment to pray and ask the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God of Truth, to guide and direct our speech. I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> yep. Can't go wrong. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would be with us today. Give us uh, insight on how to best handle the questions that come at us. And most importantly, that uh, our words would be seasoned with grace and gentleness and respect as we answer those who are genuinely seeking to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we had an email. Uh, we got an email from Yari, and uh, I'll pull it up here. And it was concerning uh, Islam. Uh, Yari had uh, an uncle said that, um, well, <clears throat> Muhammad is in the Bible and oh uh, Jesus is in the Quran, and uh, by and large, Muslims believe in the God of Christianity is the same God. So if Christians would just not be so dogmatic about the doctrine of the Trinity, then all Muslims would really be Christians, and we would all have sort of unity. So Yari wanted to know how we would respond to that charge. Well, you're going to hear that coming more and more because modern Muslim apologists are, uh, I guess, running out of ways to make excuses for their religion. Before arguing for the Quran, it was that it was perfectly preserved right down to the letter, no changes from the time of Uthman. That's been thrown out when they were literally shown multiple Arabic Qurans on Speaker's Corner, Allah Hatun Tash, our beloved lioness in the faith. Uh, there was also the argument from scientific miracles, which even their own apologists this last week are acknowledging on camera as being completely debunked, but that their faith was based on more than just scientific revelations, despite those being debunked. That's a quote from Ali Dawa. Now it seems like the only two excuses they have left are literary, or I guess, uh, yeah, lit literary excellence, that you can't produce something better than the Quran, and if you do, we'll be the judge of whether it's better than the Quran, and of course, 
hopefully you can see the problem with that. And of course, that Muhammad's mentioned in the Bible. Why don't you believe your Bible? So when it comes to the affirmation Muhammad's in the Bible, generally they're going to go one of three places. They might come up with more. The first and most common one is that he is the paraclete of John chapter 16, that Jesus prophesied the coming of Muhammad as the comforter. Now, dad as uh, one who knows paraclete as well as some other Greek words, I'm sure. Uh, what would be some problems, not just with the handling of that passage and the comparison to Muhammad, since parakletos has a very close semblance to paraklutos, which is another word for Muhammad, uh, the praised one. Uh, what would be some problems with that argument before we get into Deuteronomy and Song of Solomon? Well, right off the bat, if you substituted paraklutos for parakletos, the passage becomes unintelligible. So something sounds like something else, therefore it must be a prophecy. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and occasionally you run into this even in Christian circles. Oh, yeah. um, you know, there was a, uh, a thought that uh, Barack Obama was uh, the Antichrist because uh, when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, uh, the idea of uh, falling in, uh, in Aramaic, uh, sounds like the word for Barack, uh, and uh, it's not the same word, but it sounds like it. So uh, follow the, the logic here. You have to go to an Aramaic word that was not used even in an Aramaic translation of this particular passage, but say it sounds like it, and so Barack Obama's the Antichrist. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why we could say Barack Obama is, is not the Antichrist, um, that one is, would not be a really good uh, retort. So when uh, Muslims try to say, well, it sounds like this, so therefore it must be, um, well, let's put that praised one into that passage. What would it say? Well, it would say that Jesus is sending Muhammad in his own name, which means that if we're going to grant this, then Isa bin Miriam, what the Quran refers to Jesus as, has authority over Muhammad. And if you look at the Quran, Allah is the one who sent Muhammad in his own name. So according to that passage, Jesus, Isa, is Allah. I don't think you want to admit that. But if on the other hand... That's a problem take, for them, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, another passage they would go to makes the same mistake. This is Song of Solomon, chapter 4. I'm sure you're already buckling with the cringe at this. But let me read the passage. Uh, this is, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from washing, every one of which bears twins. None is barren among them. Your lips are strands of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like pieces of pomegranate. Your neck is the Tower of David. Uh, it, it goes on, but it ultimately ends up with, This is my beloved and this is my friend. Now, what's interesting is that when they say beloved in this passage, the word in Hebrew is machmadim. Well, that sounds a bit like Muhammadim, so they would conclude this is a prophecy of Muhammad. Uh, again, we've, uh, yeah, you're, you're already squinting at that. <laughs> you can see the problem there. They're fudging. This word sounds like this word, right. therefore this is predicting that. It's what's called the phonic fallacy. You don't prove a point across languages because something sounds similar. Uh, Sam Shamoon, David Wood, and many others have pointed out another example of this, where in Hebrew, the word for mouse is akbar. Well, in Arabic, you know, Allah is the greater, the Allah Akbar, right? Well, every time someone says Allah Akbar, that means that it's actually declaring through divine revelation that Allah is a mouse. 
So there you go. If it cuts one way, it cuts both. But here's the problem. This word sounds like this word that's not an argument of Muhammad being the Bible. The one that's most comprehensive, and this is being gracious, is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verse 15, where it says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And then it goes on to note, you'll listen to everything that he say, and it references Exodus chapter 20, but it says, And what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brethren. Now they'll isolate verse 17 and say, so what was a prophet like Moses? Well, Muhammad, like Moses, was a military general as well as a spiritual leader. Muhammad, like Moses, was a natural-born man, much like Muhammad was, unlike Isa, unlike the others. And of course, they could go through all these little nitpicking details, but they'll give example after example, a la Ahmadidat, Sakur Naik, and others, and say, see, Moses is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, because after all, even John the Baptist affirmed that he was not the prophet, but the one that was coming after him. And since Jesus was alive at that time, you can't say it was after his time. Esau was during his time. And a bunch of other isolated passages and outright manipulative deception. But here's the point. If I look at this passage and I note who is the prophet? What is the prophet going to be identified by? It will be, literally the next verse, whatever he will... Uh, it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. Note this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and that thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, you shall not... Uh, he has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So if this is the standard, that he predicts something, it doesn't come to pass, he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet is not only not a prophet, but he shall die. If you can look up on your own time Salman Rushdie's satanic verses, it was drawing attention to a specific portion of the Quran in which Muhammad is reported by Muslims to have affirmed the pagan goddesses Alat, Alusa, and Manat, who were the daughters and wife of the Nabataean god Dushara, which is one of the names of Allah. So if we're going to ask, the name of the Lord, was that ever mentioned by Muhammad? No. When we're going to ask, were any miracles like Moses performed by Muhammad? No. And that's how Deuteronomy defines a mo uh, prophet like you, Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy. That's left out. On and on it goes. But we can answer resoundingly in these little passages that they'll quote out of context and in isolation in order to give some semblance or some vague illusion, assuming, of course, you don't look the passage up for yourself, that Muhammad is in the Bible. It's an outright false statement. Now, it is true that Jesus, quote-unquote Jesus, is mentioned in the Quran. The uncle is wise in saying Christ, not Jesus, because they don't refer to him as Jesus or Yasul. It's Isa, which, by the way, was a Jewish, non-Christian, but Jewish derogatory term for Isa, and they leveled that at Jesus as an insult towards Christians, but all that being as it may. What's interesting about this as well is that in Islamic teachings, what do Jesus in the Bible and the Jesus of Islam have in common? Well, one gave life to clay birds as a child. In the Bible, do we ever have an account of Jesus doing that? No. 
<clears throat> in right? the Quran. I, 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 I missed that one. Not so, in, not, not in, in none of the canonized gospels, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. You'd have to go about 200 years later to find one. <laughs> yeah. And someone who was lying in the title page of the book he was reporting of Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. We can also note in the Quran, Jesus is reported to return, have children, and slaughter Christians and pigs. Now, I've read the book of Revelation. Is he targeting the people who called him the son of Allah? No. In the Quran, Jesus reprimands Christians, quote-unquote, followers of Isa bin Miriam, for claiming to worship him and his mother as gods besides Allah. Did Jesus ever claim in the Bible that Mary was a god? Never. You see the problem. Yeah. Now, we can mention the name of Jesus in the Quran and not get a single fact right. You can say that Muhammad's in the Bible and not get a single example right. Neither are making a point here regarding whether or not Jesus is to be taken seriously by each religion because neither are accurately represented in Islamic arguments. If we're going to then take a step back and go, well, it even says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. No, the Bible says that. When it comes to the Quran, it notes that there are seven heavens, and you can confirm this in the Hadith narrations of Abu Sayyid al-Qudri and others, but it notes that he's in the fourth of seven heavens along with John the Baptist, that Allah is above the seven heavens and above the mountain goats, the size of which between their horns and haunches are the same distance between the seven heavens and the seven earths, which are stacked on top of each other, didn't you know? But here's the point that's being made, and this is all copied from uh, Greek pagan mythology and other uh, Middle Eastern sources, but here's the point. You're going to make a lot of claims, you're going to have to provide a lot of proof. If you're going to make an association, give specific examples. If we're going to make the blanket statement and argument, and this is where I'll hand it off to you, Dad, because I think the Islamic points have been thoroughly represented or not. When someone says, if you just give up on this whole Trinity business, that seems to be the only thing that's dividing Muslims and Christians. Don't you want unity? Well, at the cost of truth, do you want that? Yeah. Well, uh, it's been attempted before. There was a uh, uh, movement uh, a while back called Chrislam, where they attempted to find middle ground between Muslims and Christians. And I mean, in theory, it sounds like a, a, a good thing, you know. Uh, you do your thing, I do mine, we meet in the middle, it's beautiful. I think there was, I had a Dayglo poster that said that back in the uh, late mm. 60s. But there's one fundamental problem with that. Um, is it possible to meet in the middle uh, as far as the claims of Islam and the claims of Christianity are concerned? Well, a trip to Jerusalem should answer that question pretty much for all of us, because in Jerusalem there is a site known as uh, the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and uh, in, next to it is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque on the outside of it has written in Arabic, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. Hmm. Now, we've got some splaining to do here if we want to say there's some middle ground there at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, because uh, in order to, uh, to put these things together, right, uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have this claim, and yet we have the claim at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. I'm not sure there's any meeting in the middle on this. Uh, so. 
uh, you know, I think well-meaning people who don't understand the truth claims of various religions uh, tend to gravitate more towards that uh, that uh, uh, coexist bumper sticker mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could all coexist? Well, coexistence, I'm all for that. I'd much rather have people not uh, detonating themselves as suicide bombers and, and uh, taking out uh, innocent people in the hope that it's going to enhance their chances of being in some kind of Garden of Earthly Delights paradise someday. Uh, I, I wish we could mm-hmm. as uh, the modern day little prophet with a little P, Rodney King once said, just all get along. Don't get <laughs> me wrong there. But when we compare the truth claims of Islam, not on side issues, but on the most important issue, who is God and who is Jesus? Uh, a simple trip to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and walking in there and saying, oh, I think we can agree that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, get ready to deck. They will not tolerate that in any way, shape, or form. So if we throw out the doctrine of the Trinity, okay, well, I've run into a lot of people that uh, believe in good old American folk religion that say uh, that believe uh, God helps those who help themselves. And if I'm a good person, I'm going to make it to heaven. Well, wouldn't a lot more people believe in Christianity if we told people that, well, if you hit above 70 on the curve of life, mm-hmm. you're going to get in? As long as you're bad is not outweighed, uh, is outweighed by your good. Yeah. Um, well, sure. The only problem is that's just not true. So uh, we've got to evaluate the truth claims of Christianity versus the truth claims of other religions. And we've got to ask ourselves a question. Why do we believe the truth claims of Jesus and not the truth claims of Muhammad? Well, no disrespect to any of our Muslim uh, listeners or viewers out there, but Muhammad lies a moldering in the grave. Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a moment of history. I would much rather put my faith and trust in someone who brings that credential to the discussion of eternal things than someone who was a prophet who died, uh, I guess, two years, was it two years after he was poisoned? A uh, couple, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so on. So um, it all kind of, <clears throat> kind of comes down to the veracity of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Girl, no yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Zadib, in the yeah. whole heart. <laughs> So, you know, again, uh, there have been attempts like Chrislam to syncretize Christianity with Islam. It began in Nigeria in the 80s. Uh, some uh, uh, well-known, uh, uh, quote-unquote, evangelicals tried to champion it uh, for a while. But uh, the deity of Jesus is a non-negotiable. We can't bend on that one. And so Chrislam... Uh, pretty much failed as a result of all of that. You got Chris slammed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not a lot of people promoting it these days. Yeah, you have to utterly disrespect both religions in order mm-hmm. to completely misrepresent them like that. In order to harmonize them, you have to either disregard one or both, but both make claims that mutually exclude the other. If you like the Isa of the Quran, then enjoy your walking argument against Christianity. But if you like the Jesus of the Bible, then understand he was crucified and he did rise from the dead in order to prove that he's mm-hmm. God. All three of those details, the Quran fundamentally denies yeah and that's not to say that you can't say there might be some facts about jesus that my i myself and a muslim might agree on when i have done missionary work in 
the Arabian Peninsula, I would begin my gospel presentation by saying things like, you and I would agree that God is holy and righteous and that his word can never be changed and that he sent Jesus, gave him the gospel to preach, that he was without sin, he was born of a virgin, he did miracles. You and I agree on those things. And if Jesus was given the Injil, the gospel, is the Arabic word for the gospel, uh, and God's word cannot be changed, then the Injil cannot be changed. So it is this Injil that I want to share with you today. And by stating it that way, I developed enough of a common ground where people were willing to stick around. But as Sean and Scott both very well pointed out, most people who try to ecumenicize <laughs> uh, world religions usually don't understand them because they perceive religions as being fundamentally similar. But the truth of the matter is, is that religions might be superficially similar, but fundamentally different. They contradict one another. And truth, by its very definition, is exclusive. So if truth is exclusive, you can't have fundamental contradictory beliefs and yet come together. Someone's going to have to give up. Yeah. Next question, uh, Cal. No, no, no. <laughs> no, not that question. No, we're not doing this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, <laughs> it is a it is a question about separation of church and state. Not really a got the co- question. the concept completely backwards. So summarize for those of you who haven't uh, had the pleasure of reading it. Essentially, the argument is: so if we're to allow religion in schools, that mean that we have to co-opt a math class to read every religious book, and therefore every single time we want to study math, we end up having to make accommodations to all these religions. No one has said, ever will said, or ever has argued, unless you're Muslim, that in an educational context, you have to read religious text. There were universities, uh, things like Harvard and Yale, that used the Bible as their textbook whatever reason, but there was an interesting difference between the claim, well, we have separation of church and state, as it was stated, say, for instance, in in, um, the Soviet Union, when people like Greg Kolka were prevented from bringing Bibles into their country, and the separation of church and state, where the statement actually came from, as quoted by one of the United States founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson in his letter to the Danbury Baptists. Which were asking Mm -hmm. about religiously dictated edicts as far as your denomination by the state. So it's not, well, you can't involve your religion in schools. No, it's saying you're not allowed to have your school determine your religion. So if the illustration is to be accurate, it would be to say, for example, like in Dearborn, Michigan and other places in England in particular, teachers telling their students to recite the Shahada as their lesson on Islam for the day, which would be legally converting them all to Islam and then holding them accountable to Sharia law for the rest of their lives. And if they go back on it, putting them under a death penalty in 27 plus states in order to uphold the apostasy laws. That's the separation of church and state. The state cannot dictate your religious terms. But if on the other hand, we're to look at the individual who made that same quote about the separation of church and state, he himself is stated and his colleagues and co-workers and co-writers of the United States Constitution that this government that we're founding is wholly unfit to rule who? Anyone other than religious people, specifically Christianity. So if we're going to play this game of straw manning or playing word games essentially with the separation of church and state to invert it on its head, the best thing to do is the same thing when other people lie about historical figures and historical quotes. Where did you get that from? Can I look that up? 
you'll avoid these kind of conversations. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I, I think uh, I would uh, go back to that uh, oh, uh, late uh, 20th century philosopher Steve Taylor, who once said, I believe for the betterment of all mankind and the total separation of church and mind. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of what these people are angling for. Yeah, it is probably one of the most misunderstood and, of course, by the Supreme Court, mi- abused concepts that does not exist in the Constitution, sadly. But uh, probably can go into that deeper another day. Yeah. Um, we'll get quotes. Yeah, Cray yeah. wants to know, will we be, will we still be needing the Bible in the afterlife? What a great question. Will we be in heaven carrying our Bibles around or not? <laughs> well, we are told in the Psalms that God's word is forever settled in heaven. Uh, we are told that it's eternal, uh, that uh, we are going to uh, understand it certainly better than we do right now. But as it is the expression of the mind and the heart and the truth of God, I think we're going to only realize at that particular point just the amazing blessing that we have within God's Word. I, I guess maybe to uh, bring it down to a, uh, a personal illustration, I remember right after I got saved, uh, I started reading the Bible and uh, understanding it for the first time. And man, I was just, I couldn't get enough. Mm-hmm. I remember one night I, was, I started reading the Gospel of John and it was just so engrossing and so involving. I, I read the whole thing in one night and, uh, and uh, it was just amazing to me to encounter these kinds of truths. But uh, you know, after about six months of uh, being a, a new believer, this thought crossed my mind, man, I just love reading the Bible. I mean, it just ministers so much to my heart and just getting to know Jesus. But I wonder if I'm ever gonna get to know it so well that it's gonna be like yesterday's newspaper. And I've run into Christians that kind of have that attitude, uh, kind of church kids, like you start to share with them a scripture. Ah, know it, heard that, I understand, I get it, you know. And it's almost like a deflector shield, if you will, to keep it from getting to the heart. Well, I, I wondered if that would happen to me, you know, if I'd f- ever find the Bible boring or yesterday's news, so to speak. Well, I remember asking that question in 1973. That's almost, what, 50 years ago? And, you know, now I have a, a three-year master's degree in biblical languages and theology. I've been teaching God's Word as a vocation since 1981. Um, I feel like I've just scratched the surface here. Mm. I mean, every time I turn around, the Lord will show me some new application point or, or an area in his word that I'd never fully considered before or a link to other truths that we find in the word. And, you know, that's with my funky, fallen, finite little human brain. Just imagine what's going to happen when mm. we stand before the Lord and uh, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, comes to pass. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I'm fully known. Have that capacity to be able mm-hmm. to take in the awesome wonder of God's truth. So since God is infinite, uh, we're going to spend an eternity getting to know that infinitude. Uh, since his word is something that he has exalted even above his name, his very character, it only stands to reason that uh, that's going to be a glorious mm-hmm. exploration that we're going to be a part of forever. I, I tend to think that those who have that attitude about, oh, I already read it, I know, I know it all, what it says, is, are folks who, and this is just my opinion, but I suspect, 
stopped reading it a long time ago and don't want to be reminded about what it says. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that disturb mm, me. Indeed. So I think it kind of ties into that. Mm. Great. Thank you. And uh, what a great uh, personal testimony of how impactful God's Word can be. Uh, I know that there are times where I read something and I think, I know I've read this a million times, but I feel like I've never read it before because this seems completely new to me. This little in-depth understanding, this this wording that I just don't recall ever having read, and now it's like really impacting my life today. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, another example of it would be, um, I love the book of Romans. You know, I'm a recovering adult child of an attorney, hmm. and you read the book of Romans and you see that the Apostle Paul had the mind of an attorney as he makes this case for justification by faith, mm. uh, that the just shall live by faith, and on all the implications that's, that are involved there. I love that book, studied it on a graduate level, did my master's thesis on Romans 9 through 11. And then I went through this incredible reversal in my life where I felt like I'd lost everything. Mm. And I turned again to the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 5, that says, uh, you know, that uh, uh, Therefore, I've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've received this introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces endurance and endurance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. For the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit has given. That one little phrase there, hope does not disappoint us, mm. came alive to me during that time like no other. It was just like I'd never read it before. And, and I mean, I've read it in the Greek, but I've never read that before. And when God takes his word and ministers it to your heart in that kind of way, according to your need, according to the work that he's doing within our lives, Oh, there's, there's nothing mm. more exciting than that. It's, I bear witness to what you were saying there, mm. brother. And that's what really separates the Christian faith from all others in that our hope is in trustworthy truth, yeah. not wishful thinking. Well, I hope it kind of turns out. That's not what we're talking about when we say right. hope. It's, right. it's objective. It's, it exists outside of my own thoughts and feelings. It is the hope. And in regard to the question itself, Jesus said regarding the scriptures, you search them, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Mm. The definition of the afterlife is with Jesus. You'll have access to the word made flesh, so you won't need a paper copy. Mm, interesting. Nice, nice point there. Uh, next question from Shoespeak. <laughs> Shoespeak. <laughs> I love some of his questions. Though. Uh, what do you guys think of devotionals, obviously, to supplement Bible reading? Are they a good tool for deepening your faith? Any recommendations? That's well, the key, isn't it? Practice discernment on what you're reading, but once yeah. you find one, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, uh, there's Morning and Evening uh, by Charles Spurgeon. I think if you read through that, you're going to get into some really wonderful things to think about. Uh, you know, I think about uh, the one that my wife Pam and I go through uh, every morning, and I highly recommend it because it's just so challenging to me. Uh, one Minute Meditations by Chuck Smith Jr. I, I should probably get some kind of a kickback on this because I recommend it so much. But the thing I love about it is it's based upon a radio series he used to do called One Minute Meditations. And you read one of these and it takes you one minute to get through it. 
But uh, my wife Pam and I will read through that and then we'll talk about it and it will influence the direction of our prayers. And, mm. you know, um, so, you know, I think uh, a devotion is a good thing if it's sort of, I guess to use Greg Kuckel's uh, terminology, puts a pebble in your shoe to remember to be in God's word every day. It's a very helpful habit. Uh, a good devotion, like a good sermon, is going to encourage you to dig deeper into God's word. It shouldn't be a substitute for it, but it should be something that kind of prompts you in that direction, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. So, good, yeah, I, I think they definitely can be a blessing. Mm. We're getting a lot of activity today, so... Thank you for joining us, and thank you for uh, leaving questions. Um, let's see here. There's some. It's. I have to I'll separate. I'll take this the, one real quick. Sure. Uh, no, I never lived in a van down by the river at any time in my life. Uh, came close to having nowhere to live in a couple sets of circumstances, mm. but no, I never uh, lived in a van down by the river eating government cheese. I am 35 years old. <laughs> I am divorced. And yeah. he, we just found you. No, no, I was really uh, Katie wanted to know. <clears throat> Katie. Yeah, Katie Hawk. Uh, does the Holy Spirit enhance who we are now that we are saved, assisting us in godly behavior? Or does he at times take over completely? There it is in touch, taste, sense, smell, so that we no longer desire the things of the flesh. Uh, uh, we are now slaves of Christ, so does the Holy Spirit at times completely take over, sort of possessing us? Yeah, like how we dealt with a couple times this week, that 1 Corinthians 14 passage is an outline for what God's Spirit does and doesn't do, is an excellent fallback point whenever you hear someone talk about, well, the Spirit took over, and I, I just I couldn't help myself, or, you know, the, the Spirit did a work in my life, and now I, I'm just completely, you know, free from all known sin. Well, all well and good, I'm, I'm happy you're humble bragging, but when it comes to what God does and doesn't do, we judge that based off of, if it's legitimate, what he's told us he will do and won't do in his word. And interestingly enough, the passage in verse 32 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, followed up by the famous passage, God's not the author of confusion, it notes this, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, what's the context of this? Well, let me read the statement in its entirety. When people are prophesying or exercising tongues, this is in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him, that is the one who's speaking in tongues, keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. He defined that as one of the legitimate exercises of tongues, not interrupting service, right. not out of control, or I just couldn't help myself. Note this, there is a time and a place and a method for it. It notes, let two or three prophets, now again, we think of prophets as guys writing the Bible, but in the way Paul's speaking, the gift of prophecy, what would be the simplest way to define that today? A Bible teacher, right? Someone who's speaking right. on behalf right. of God, someone yeah. sharing God's word. Let the others judge. And if anything is revealed to another who sits by, oh, oh I, I have something here, right? Let him keep silent, <laughs> for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So note this 
interesting insight into how the Holy Spirit does things. Is he going to overwhelm a crowd and make them all fall over, right? And the disruption or this display of divine power. We don't see that in Scripture. No. We see Jesus knocking down a crowd, coming to arrest him to remind them who's in charge here. But that's, of course, a very specific and a very uh, hostile example. When we're talking about... Not an about act of worship. No. <laughs> uh, when the Holy Spirit spoke through people, even legitimately, what does Paul tell them to do? One at a time, wait, let all things be done decently and in order. That's the verse that started this conversation in verse 26. <clears throat> it continues on. If the Spirit just causes you, you, you feel like something's going to come on and you know you want to speak in tongues, generally, especially in Pentecostal circles, that's their opportunity to stand up and start proclaiming it because you can't resist the Spirit, right? Well, scripturally, no. If there is no interpreter, keep silent and pray that before yourself and God. There's a way of doing things. So if we ask ourselves then, when the Spirit interacts with us, does He just take over? Does He rob us of our will? Not according to Scripture. Not according to His job description of Himself, written by Himself, <laughs> where He said, what? You're subject to the prophets. I'm not going to dominate your will. I'm going to direct it, just like the authors of Scripture, just like those who are properly exercising spiritual gifts, just like I've revealed in my Word. Now note, if you, and this is an example in mentioning the uh, freedom from inward sin, for instance, you have opportunities in your life where you could just be thankful to God. You know, uh, I can speak in my own life when first came to the Lord, I was uh, a kleptomaniac in training. Just haven't had that desire. He, he can testify, right? But if on the other hand, we're going to note areas of sin, like for example, the lust of the eyes, I'm still struggling with it. Does that mean I don't have enough faith? Does that mean the Holy Spirit's restrained in my life? I, I'm doing a negative confession of my uh, struggles? No, it means that there's an opportunity for me to trust God in mercy rather than in a demonstration of power. But he's not going to dominate my will. Why do we say that? Because we see that in Scripture. Also, if we're going to make a point and note, well, what about just opportunities where I said something and then I took a step back and I went, wow, I was even blessed by that. Where did that come from? That wouldn't be an example of the domination of will, but like we said, a directing leading. And, and this is where the importance of the inspiration of Scripture comes in, yeah. not to set the agenda here. Yeah. But when we see, for example, the revelation of God's Word, do we see, as the authors themselves described it, the Holy Spirit kind of marionetting them, and then just kind of automatic writing, or whatever the word is, and then they wake up, and it's like, oh my gosh, I wrote a Second Corinthians. No, what happened when these men were, and I quote, inspired? Yeah, well, again, uh, the, the reference that you're referring to is in the book of Second Peter, where it talks about no scripture is a matter of any private interpretation. For holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved there, really interesting in the original language, the word that, that would describe a ship using the trade winds to get blown, if you will, to its proper destination. So, you know, what we see in that, that passage, a really interesting thing, God used human beings, their life situation, their, their culture, the, where they were living at that particular time, and the Holy Spirit moving in them and through them to get them to exactly the destination that he had in mind. You know, it, it doesn't say that God took, say, someone that was going to be inspiring the Scripture, you know, shoved his hand up the back of them and made them play ventriloquist dummy. Uh, no, it, it is a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit working in and through that person's life uh, was able to do these things. 
And, and you know, the funny thing is, when the Holy Spirit really ministers and speaks, and, and this is an experience I've had a lot of times as a pastor, you know, there's times where I'm really kind of, uh, you know, geeked up over the idea, oh man, I hope the Holy Spirit really speaks to somebody because it's always exciting when someone comes up to me after service and say, man, that message was just for me. The Lord just spoke to me, you know, and so on. I, I've even had uh, some people come up and say, well, I really didn't appreciate your message there. You know, well, what was wrong? And he goes, well, you know, this is my first time here. And uh, clearly my friends who invited me, uh, this is an honest to goodness conversation. And clearly my friends who invited me told you what was going on in my life uh, because that's, that's really all you talked about. <laughs> and, and I really, you know, you're picking on me from the pulpit. If you got something to say to me, just say to me now. And I always got, I remember laughing and just saying, I have no idea who you are at all. And they're like, I said, but I know somebody who does know what's going on here. Now, I love that, but you can't force that. Mm. It's something that the Holy Spirit does when we're pretty much almost unconscious of it as he honors his word. Mm. So, um, you know, I think, I think there's, uh, there are people that are trying to get into this unfortunate fake it till you make it kind of spirituality where you know, they confuse emotionalism or pursuing some feeling or over-the-top experience the ministry of the holy spirit but uh, understand something the holy spirit leads he doesn't push mm. um he is the one who guides us he's going to lead us into all truth but he doesn't you know push us down the you know the, the street and oh you know well uh you know the holy spirit speaking through me right now and I, I can't help myself uh you know the really interesting scripture along this line is found in the book of galatians chapter 5 it says i say then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish now what's being described here is this tension that we have of living in two ages at once uh, we are indwelt by the holy spirit and he is guiding us into all truth he is conforming us to the image of jesus but we are still locked into these fallen sinful bodies and the fallen nature that we have and these things are in uh, conflict with one another uh, you know well who wins the battle well there's the classic illustration of a, a missionary to the Inuit Indians who uh, was sharing with the Inuit uh, about this concept and uh, the Inuit said I think I understand this you know I have a team of uh, sled dogs and there's two really dominant ones one's uh, pure white and the other's pure black and they're always fighting to see who's going to be the dominant uh, sled dog and the missionary said, well, who wins? He goes, well, I suppose the one I feed the most. Hmm. And uh, I think that's really the battle that we have with the Holy Spirit and our fallen sinful nature. Uh, we are indwelt with the Spirit, but we are still in process. Hmm. Uh, the Apostle Paul didn't say, wretched man that I was, who will deliver me from this body of death. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. So we do experience victory. Chuck Swindoll once called it a three-step forward, two-steps-back kind of samba that we do in this world, if we're really honest mm. about it, you know? And, you know, hopefully uh, I'm not struggling with the same things that I struggled with when I first became a Christian, but, uh, you know, the Lord is always digging deeper. Um, you know, I, I, I remember uh, having a job uh, managing an avocado orchard uh, for my, wow. my uh, grandparents' real estate uh, firm in California 
And that meant that we had to go out and we had to, you know, uh, make sure that the irrigation system was, wasn't broken and prepare PCV pipe and, you know, cut back the trees and, and all this. But one of the things we had to do was we had to take out the weeds. And this was before the weed whacker, believe it or not. Uh, they just kind of gave you this big scythe and it was great for your golf game because all we'd do out there in these big stretches, <laughs> we just, with the side, just go back and forth and we'd knock out these weeds. And you know, after you know, three or four hours, you'd make a serious dead in it. And you go, wow, there's progress. And you know, it was funny, about two weeks later, boom, all the weeds would be back. Why? Because uh, we weren't getting the roots. Mm. And that always made an impression on me because as soon as I became a Christian, a lot in my life changed pretty radically and pretty, pretty quickly. And I just thought, oh, man, you know, if this keeps up another six months, I'll be just like Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and but the thing I realized was God was just taking out the weeds that I could see. And now the real work begins when he gets down and starts taking out things mm-hmm. by the root. What a great so, illustration. So that's kind of where we're at. De-rooted. De- from de-rootified. The, well, that's, I think, probably why Jesus said if your hand causes you to sin, he uses this extreme statement to emphasize how important it is that we root out sin in our lives. But, you know, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, not literally. Not literally. Our, our problem with sin does not exist in our eye or our hmm. hand. It's right here. It's in our heart. Anything you want to add to that, Sean? Good. Yeah. There's a movie question that we got. Um, Allie wanted to know, is the multi-universe anything relevant to the Bible? Anything we can take from these movies, or is it just make-believe? Uh, for those of you who don't know, I uh, have a YouTube ministry where I try and find biblical themes in movies. Uh, generally, the three things that people are two categories of films people are looking in the multiverse terms is DC and Marvel. Uh, when it comes to both, there's a reason why I haven't done any studies on movies at past Avengers Endgame and why I still haven't touched The Flash. And uh, The Flash, of course, being a multiverse movie, haven't seen it, so I can't comment on it. I'm not a, a fan of uh, some of the actors' behavior. Michael Keaton wasn't exactly my generation. I just have no loyalty, so I'm not going to comment on it because I haven't seen it. Um, but the first two big multiverse themes movies, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and then, of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, uh, were both hard strikes as far as me doing anything related to the MCU ever again, and here's why. Uh, there's always you know, something positive that you can take from a story, otherwise it just wouldn't be a worthwhile story worth telling, and as you can see, their stories are becoming less and less worthwhile because their box numbers are plummeting. These two stories in particular, Doctor Strange was fun if you just were there for the magic and the you know shows and sorcerer shenanigans and stuff. But uh, what I was watching, and you can bear testimony to this because we saw it together with my roommate. But um, the theme of the film seemed to be bending this direction of you had an evil book that could only be answered with the good book. There was the the sacred tome that glowed blue and there was the sacred tome that glowed red and the goal of the movie was to get after that good book and you could see me you know scratching my uh, very much rapidly incoming beard and going I like that. So the lie has to be answered with the truth. The only solution to the false gospel is the true gospel. Right. Well, as you remember in the movie, they pulled a Ryan Johnson on us, totally just cast the book aside as useless in the power of the awesomeness that is Wanda. And she just uh, ended up destroying herself. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Uh, so that's like disappointing for me but as far as anything biblical or gospel in that there was an opportunity mm-hmm. and instead we had to hear about the parents and biological origins of miss marvel 
or uh, excuse me, America Chavez. Now, I don't really care about that, a missed opportunity, but maybe something to inspire conversations on in spite of the story. But Quantum Mania was the third strike for me. And we're going to count this as two for a very important reason. When, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, don't, it's dumb. But uh, the, the secondary villain, Maddox, the machine designed only for chaos and all that stuff, is uh, presented as just this, you know, sadistic tool, the toady for the big bad that is Conqueror King and all that stuff. But the pinnacle of the movie was there was an opportunity for someone to lay down their life for someone that they love, that I'm the one who's going to die on behalf of others. I'm going to care about my enemies and so forth. Uh, classic copy and paste Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8. I love it. There's no greater love than this for a man to lay down his life for his friends. John right. chapter 15. That movie purposefully inverted that principle and motivated that level of self-sacrifice to the daughter of Ant-Man swearing at him. So, when it comes to a disrespect to the gospel and the motivation of our Lord and my God and the reason why he saved me, I don't have anything to do with that kind of movie. When it comes to dancing around a topic and then taking it away at the last second almost as a mockery of that concept that the truth is the answer to a lie, no, you can find your own truth and discover it. Those aren't the kind of messages you want to feed yourself or uh, kind of cultivate your worldview on. There's obviously people who just go to the movie for the big flashy lights and the mm -hmm. jangling key equivalent of storytelling. I personally want to leave a movie with more than I walked into it, apart from the popcorn. So when it comes to the multiverse movies, none of them, as far as the substance of their story, have had anything to offer that's of biblical relevance, and that's why I haven't talked about them, and I don't like being a critic. But um, who knows what awaits us in the future, but when it comes to what's actually on the table, those movies don't have anything going for them, at least that <clears throat> I can take away. Is there any, um, any, take, is there any biblical po a possible reference to the idea of a multiverse, the idea that, and I, I've always thought that the idea of the multiverse is just the atheist's attempt to get away from a beginning that if you have a beginning, you have to have a beginner. It, it kind of strikes me as uh, an attempt to buy time uh, because uh, the, the truth that science comes out on is that uh, there's just not enough time uh, in the universe as we understand it now uh, for all those monkeys to somehow type Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> and they need an infinite source or yeah. an outside influence to yeah, produce yeah. a creation that started. So the idea is, well, there's an infinite universe and we just happen to be in the one we're in. Many of the, what they call the anthropic principle is that the, the universe seems to have been designed for humanity to exist. Right. Well, maybe there are all kinds of universes and this one just happens to support life and these other ones were just Infinite number of well, universes. Well, it's, it's like saying, you know, well, you know, in order for this universe to be so fine-tuned for life, it would be like uh, rolling 10 to the 605th power dice and having them all come up as a one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you go, well, how in the world could something like that ever happen? Well, with a finite universe, which physics shows it's finite, it has beginning and an end, you don't have enough time for that sort of a thing to happen. It's got to happen exactly mm -hmm. right, exactly right. Well, what if we just postulate out of whole cloth uh, this idea of all these different universes? So if, um, you know, what, what are we in Marvel 
world now. I don't care. 616 or something like that. Um, you know, to me, it's like the ultimate, I guess, what is the term, a MacGuffin? Yeah. You know, <laughs> a, 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 a lazy plot device. It's like time travel. You know, any movie that has time travel or multiverses tells me it was written by lazy writers, mm. you know. And, uh, but the, the interesting thing about it all is, is all this discussion of it, you know, is kind of raising this issue, okay? The universe we do live in, the one that we do have to deal with, the one that can be proven empirically to exist, is incredibly fine-tuned for life. So much so that atheistic scientists, like you say, they got a word for it, the anthropic principle. Mm. How did this universe come about? So, you know, in a sense, yeah. it's playing into our hands mm -hmm. as those that believe the God of the Bible. And just so you know, there is no evidence whatsoever for the concept of a multiverse. It's purely imaginative and theoretical. Yep. So. Um, well, we got maybe what time for one more. Real quick, uh, Daniel wanted to know to whom Jesus is talking in Matthew 19, 21 through 22. What evidence we have that God stopped the time after week 69, Daniel? Yeah, easy. Um, verse 21, Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, your answer. Jesus said to him, who? Peter. Yeah. That's who he was talking to. Yeah. Now, uh, Daniel 9, uh, 26, you want to know what, where did the time stop? Well, it tells us in verse 26, after 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, why does it note 62? It's in reference back to the 62 and 7. It's because 70 weeks total, where's the last week? We're awaiting it. And verse 27 says, then. then. So that's when the clock awesome. starts ticking again. Well, great show. We, uh, I think, hit one of our higher level of questions answered, I think. Uh, we're excited about that. <laughs> it's so Thank much you fun. Uh, for joining us. And uh, don't forget to catch our services this Sunday. And again, we'll be here on Monday, same place, same time. Thanks for joining in. God bless you. Have a great weekend. God bless you, guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.